so excited and blown away for you to listen to part two of my podcast interview with Marie Anderson over fashion, beauty, and entertainment. Every week when I prepare these podcasts to drop, I have the opportunity to reflect by listening so I can hear what it was that we actually spoke on. And I cannot tell you how blown away I was. I literally, my hand went to my forehead when the the interview was done. I couldn't believe how intuitively we were aligned with what was going on this, this more recent times, this week or so over the entertainment industry. The timing was just beyond fascinating. But how we talk about everything from being warriors to getting really deep and raw about some personal experiences that we both have had and how it ties in to the businesses that we're involved with. I really look forward to you joining us around the campfire and do yourself a favor, listen to the whole hour because it really gets juicy at the end. So though I can never know what my guests are gonna say, this is exactly why I'm doing this. And also prepare yourself because not only is it raw, but my words are pretty raw. So I look forward to you listening. I look forward to you joining me around the campfire. I look forward to you being a part of Camp BB Uncensored community. And thank you so much for once again joining me for another episode of what I'm excited to be building and sharing and having people understand that they too might hear themselves in these stories, that they too might have an opportunity to get a deeper insight to things and that is on top of being entertained what my goal is thank you so much for joining i look forward to you hearing and i look forward to getting your feedback and have a wonderful wonderful week bye for now and it's interesting because you walk around this super confident woman that people look up to and i get that a lot People just like, that woman just fucking roars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you know, like, <laughs> not, not, but, but at the same time, I, the, you know, the, the quaint me is like, you fucking right, I roar. Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. you noticed. Oh, good. I'm glad you know. But like, I don't know. Do you go through that, like, that sheepish as well as that, like, get out of my fucking way. I got this. Oh, hell yeah. Especially being a martial artist. Well, of course, I'll never forget being on Laurel Canyon <laughs> and meeting you outside the Gold's Gym. I'm oh, at right. Rathy Knoll. Yes, yes, that's so crazy. Yes, I was training with uh, Harold Diamond, world-renowned martial artist, getting ready for my black belt test. So that must have hey. been around, crap, 2003, four, something like yes, that. Yes, it was. You know why? Because I was... <laughs> So I think it's so interesting because you're talking 2003-2004 when we were meeting on that grassy knoll on Laurel Canyon, which is classic because I remember going through that process being like, oh, no, 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 I, I don't, I don't like this too much touchy, too much. And I'm a very touchy feely person, yeah. which is really funny for me that I was like, oh, no, 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 too much touchy. But what I was doing at the very same time that you were doing that 
was I was training with a heavyweight champion boxer who I ended up dating. <laughs> and of course you did. <laughs> of course I did. Um, but, um, but ended up like training with all these pros who kept saying, oh, you need to go pro. And I'm like, wow. no, 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 I'm not going pro. And they're like, no, 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 you have no idea when you get in the ring, how mean your face looks. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, seriously? And they're like, no, seriously, like it's such an intense focus that, and I was like, well, that's not happening. Like, I love the art of feeling confident I love the form of exercise. I always knew it would align with me, but ironically, I don't like hitting. Like I like hitting a bag or a, a or or a glove, but I don't want to hit somebody. I don't want to be hit, which I think is ironic that we're in this like martial arts and boxing, but what we came from, which I think is probably. And I know on a certain psychological level and intuitive level that it all freaking intertwines. Oh, I need to defend myself. I'm going to go learn how to defend myself. Oh, I just defended myself. Now I'm going to raise that bar. <laughs> it's basically the story of like, you know, becoming your own warrior. Well, it's interesting. You should bring that up. Um, that whole kind of psychic, uh, like psyche, I should say, psyche. Um, I did not know this about myself until I was 17. And my husband at that time had taken, uh, he was in the middle of beating me again, and he took this frying pan. You know those big black skillets? I think it sit on, on the uh, um stove yeah yeah um and he took one of those and slammed it against my head and it was the most amazing transformation where i got this literal superpower yeah and i leapt at him and i got my hands around his throat now this was a martial arts football player like this unbelievable athlete and i was now strangling him yeah. And oddly enough, he wasn't really fighting back. Yeah. And I was watching the life leave his face and he was turning blue. And all of a sudden, to me, it was God's, God's intervention. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I see like this ticker tape in my, in my head, in my mind's eye. I see this ticker tape and it says life has got to be better than this. Mm -hmm. And I let go of him. Mm -hmm. I know that when the time comes, there is a rage that can be rallied mm -hmm. to the point where I was in, um, back to the, my, my training primarily is in Shidokan, which is a mixed martial art. And I was in um, Florence, Italy, and I think it was 2008, and I was rushing to a train. Yeah. And there were, there were two, um, I'll call them gypsies because that's yeah, yeah. what they appear yeah, to yeah. Yeah. Um, Two, um, uh, a, a smaller male and a smaller female. 
tried to mug me. Yeah. And I knew that they were coming up behind me, thankfully, because my training, I was paying attention. Yeah. And I whipped around. Yeah. And this voice came out of me like something from the exorcist. Yeah. And I screamed at them as loud as I could with my yep. warrior cry. <laughs> yeah. And I said, am I allowed to cuss bad? Can I oh, say yeah. that? Yeah, okay. please. So I, I yelled at them and I won't do it now, but I yelled no, at do them. It, do it. I'll break the speakers. <laughs> I yelled at them, not me, mother fuckers. I mean, and I was long and loud. And these two people literally jumped back <laughs> and they ran. Yeah. And one went down, one, they got to the intersection. They went, went, one went right, the other went left. But I stood there like, who is that? <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah. So back to the whole, the thing about lioness and that ability to defend ourselves. It's like, I think most people, if they don't know that I train in martial arts, mm -hmm. most people see me from what I'm told as this very sweet, super nice, almost too nice sometimes yeah, kind of person. And it's like, that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't, don't misunderstand my indulgence of certain situations as a weakness. And I'm a pushover because I'm not a pushover. I'm just paying attention and I'm taking notes until it's time where I really have to do something. Amen. So that whole, yeah. So that whole martial arts training for me, and oddly enough, I started off as a boxer here in Chicago with Chris Cruz, Christopher, um, who was a pro, a pro boxer. And she's the one that brought me into Chicago fitness center and got me into boxing. But I found out very early on I did not like my face being hit. Hello. And, and I was not a good boxer. I'm, I'm a slow athlete. So my face was constantly bump, bump, bump. <laughs> and the idea of blocking and bobbing and weaving, that just wasn't, that just wasn't coming up for me very quickly. So that's why I ended up getting into the martial arts because I needed more appendages because I needed more tools. Can you be an octopus versus uh, just a focus? Like, and that's the funniest thing because literally the very first time I stepped in the ring, which was literally just to learn my first few moves. Uh -huh. One, I was a trained dancer. So yeah. Bobbing, maybe moving, yeah. Oh, let's choreograph this. We got this. <laughs> And the first thing I said to who then became my boyfriend down the line, because I was which I was actually with my husband already as a boyfriend. Uh -huh. I wasn't married to him. We then unfortunately broke up for a short time that I called out and then ended up with the boxer. But the very first thing I said to him in that moment was, I'm here to box and learn how to spar and lose weight. Do not touch my face, because if you touch my face, do not, I cannot tell you what the control, I will like, I will hit you fucking back. <laughs> and I just knew it. I just knew it. And going back to that, 
who showed up both in your situation with your marriage in that moment and at the train station in Florence, you know, things that I've, it's funny. It's interesting because I know I could have like yourself, you know, written screenplays, written books about surviving. I've often said I could go in front of Congress based upon the things that, you know, in, in regards to but being a believer or believing in in the abuse and the abusing that's going on, the abuse that's going on behind closed doors that people do not seem to believe, you know, and one of the things that, um, I mean, I, I've never really talked about this series of events in publicly of things that people would not believe, you know, and, um, you know, when I left my marriage, which you are familiar with being with Dan, who because of you did I meet Dan. Um, you know, when I left that marriage and walked into what I didn't realize was going to be a domestic violent relationship off and on for five years, um, I have no idea where I got the skills to protect myself. Because to the best of my knowledge, I had never been in a situation that I had to defend myself. I know that for a fact. And yet, there were moments like yourself that I don't know who showed up, but I was grateful that I showed up however I showed up defending myself. But I also was told after the fact that there were moments that I really should have died in these moments of heightened, heightened abuse. And that all of a sudden everything would dissipate. And I was even asked, do you remember those moments? And there were a couple of those very heightened moments throughout off and on. And, um, you know, pregnant three times. I had never been pregnant before. I didn't get pregnant as a girl. Thankfully, I didn't get pregnant as a, as a, in my first marriage, never protected, by the way, in seven years, never pregnant. No sooner get out of this marriage in the process of divorce, like when papers are filed, Immediately within four months, I'm pregnant. And the abuse starts up immediately. I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is statistical. Like if you look at the paperwork of abusers. Yeah. And I tell this to people all the time. If you go into formal training or formal therapy in that version of therapy, you will learn. Like I remember sitting in an office and I don't mean to be jumping all around, but I, you know, this is how I talk. Uh, you know, that literally sitting in the office after getting out of that five years later, and there's six pages, Marie, of copy. And out of those six pages, 90% plus of my life was described being with this human being. And I think growing up in a world of narcissism and selfish behavior and manipulation and snakes in the grass, and we never know when these things or these people are coming in our way, right? And I think for people like ourselves who are kind, who are sweet, who are light, who are who are what darkness wants because they don't have it. They don't they don't know how to get it. This is the only way they get it. And then they dim it, going back to dimming light. Yeah. You know, from our original like opening this door conversation. Do they then go, oh my God, there it is. I'm gonna get that. And they think of it as like you said, don't 
don't take me for a fool. Like, yes, we both ended up innocently in these environments. And I say innocently with grace because I think sometimes it can feel so embarrassing. So like, how the fuck of all fucking people did I end up in that fucking situation? Like, I have better things to do with my time. Don't you know, I have got a world to conquer out here. How the fuck did I end up behind closed doors being beaten in my head, being put in a dog bowl? Like, how did I end up in a in a closet thanks to some people who were in the foreign press who were my next door neighbors who saved me? So when he came looking for me down the hall, they couldn't. he couldn't find me and they didn't reveal me. How is it? that, you know, um, by the grace of God, in a moment of heightened, just because anytime Baca got into that man's system, all bets were off. And because it was a silent alcohol form of you can't smell it, you don't see it, you don't know how it happened. And all of a sudden, Jekyll and Hyde shows up. And in the flip of a switch, you are now in defense mode. And you could have just you know, been in a whole nother mindset. And now you're in a defense mode. Like war just took off out of nowhere. The bombers just dropped the bomb out of nowhere. And you're like, like a cat landing and going, what the fuck? Okay, now I got to go. And I'm in now defense mode. And what the fuck, you know, and how did I get out of that? And now scrambling my house and three dogs and going into safety mode, but no shelter will take you because you got three big dogs or like just five years of off and on of no family, no friends around, no nothing. Like it wasn't that friends weren't around. It was just that in this industry, the entertainment industry, friends are a very loosely used term. Yeah, 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 yeah. So as we both know in our careers, how many people have actually been with you for the last 40 years? Yeah. That are still in your life. Yeah, very few. I mean, I can say foundationally, I know people that are still in my life from the age of five years old. So I know I'm loyal and committed, but I also know that I've moved around a lot. So to look at somebody like you, thankfully, even through technology, we can have this yummy, loving conversation, very authentic and real, exactly the kinds of things that why I want to do this platform. Because yeah, we could have thought we were walking in to talk about the business, but I didn't, you know, what I love about conversing is you never know what peels back and uh-huh. gets revealed. And this to me is the core of how and who we became, who we've become and where we're going forward. And what's so important for people to hear that we're two very real authentic women who have lived a lot of life and we're just, we've just like skimmed the surface of the life we've lived to get to where we are and what we've seen and why what why what well why I love you so much Hmm. and why I think anybody who has you in their life however they have you in their life is so very fortunate to have you in their life because you are somebody who does care Mm -hmm. does does see does hear is present even maybe in times that didn't want to be any of those things. Maybe at a time when things got really dark and you said, you know what? The basement floor has been hit. Yeah. Yeah. I have no nothing to give you. 
Have you ever had that moment? Oh yeah, I was 16 and uh, attempting suicide. I, I just, I mean, who the hell knows in 1975 in Cocoa Beach, Florida, anything about suicide, like, you know, that it's not like people were talking about it or even kids in school fantasize, you know what I mean? It was just, it was like, for me, how did I even come up with that? I don't know, but the point is, is that I, <clears throat> I had no hope. I saw no future and I was tired of being beaten by my mother. I was tired of being beaten by my husband. I was tired of being told I was stupid. Uh, in school, I was tested as a lower learner. Um, they're just, I, I did not feel like I was of value to anybody and that terminating my life would be the, the easiest thing for all involved. And I love sharing this story because this goes back to being nice or whatever. I am definitely a caretaker. Mm -hmm. And if you can appreciate this twisted humor, so the, the backstory, so I knew what I was gonna do. I had this massive, um, vial of pills and i went uh, to a bar which we did i was 16 then yes so back then in florida they didn't check your ids and we looked older and so um my girl best friend janet uh who's still my best friend um, my best friend janet her boyfriend at the time paul my husband and i we go to the bar and i waited for them to get just drunk enough that um, I thought that they were so engrossed in their conversation, they wouldn't pay attention to my, to my spending some time away. So I just said, yeah. you know, I, you guys, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And so I went to the bar and I got this huge um, pitcher of beer. And then I got into my husband's Buick Skylark. <laughs> I, my face for first car. I love a Buick Skylark. You're talking my game, girl. And it was like this really pretty blue, this uh, kind of a light sky blue kind of thing. But anyway, um, I sit in the car and I've got the windows up and the locks down and I'm just sitting in the front of the car, assuming that I'm going to uh, fulfill my objective. And I sat there gobbling up the pills and drinking the, the beer to wash them down and probably about eight to nine minutes into that that plan janet comes out and sees what i'm doing in the car and she starts screaming at me to stop and i'm like no let me go let me go and she starts slamming her hands on the window now i'm starting to get worried about my girlfriend cutting her hand <laughs> But I wasn't re quite ready to let go. And so I just kept, and then she got my husband and now he's banging his hands on the windows. And now I'm like, oh my God, my, the people I love the most in my life are going to hurt themselves. I, I better stop my suicide because I don't want them to hurt their hands. <laughs> oh my God. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> so yes. That, that's what happened when I was 16. I had hit the basement. That was, that was the wall, whatever proverbial expression. I was done and I didn't want to live anymore. And I didn't think that anybody would care. Well, I think that um, 
obviously well thank god people cared and people you know good bad or otherwise like you had your good friend and then you're you know not good influence ironically showing up all the same time which is kind of an interesting theory in and of itself like you, you <laughs> no stay so i can hurt you no stay because i love you right <laughs> now get your ass out of the car so i can smack you around a little bit you're a lot handier <laughs> than the dog Exactly, exactly. So um, after that situation, how soon after did you get out of your marriage? So let me see, that was um, around November of 1975. And then January of 1976, I would leave him and be homeless okay. from January of 1976 till June of 1976. And then uh, I would graduate just barely, but I would graduate from high school and then move to Chicago. At 16 or 17? 17. Were... 17. And, and why Chicago? Well, the short version is, is I had two older brothers that were in Chicago and they were very successful hairdressers in Lincoln Park. They had a salon called Brothers. Imagine two Warren Beatty's, you know, from Shampoo. Oh my God. Very tall, very handsome, very charming, very talented hairdressers. Um, but um, the one, uh, one of them, I'll keep his name out of it. One of them um, had come uh, to my high school graduation and saw the deplorable situation I was living in. And he said, you know, you can't live like this. Come to Chicago. I'll take care of you. You can move into my apartment. I live in this great area called Lincoln Park. Um, and I'll take care of you. And so I was like, and I barely really knew him because he was eight years older than me. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I was ready to take any opportunity talking mm -hmm. about desperate. And um, so he picks me up at the airport and he said at the airport, you know how I told you I was going to take care of you? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, I have a new girlfriend and she doesn't want you around. So I've left it. I've left you my studio apartment. You've got the month um, where you can get yourself a job and get yourself financially independent, but you can't move into me. And if you remember 2020 Lincoln Park West. On of course. Yeah. So he had this beautiful like sky rise apartment overlooking the city and no, 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 you can't come here. You're going to live in the studio behind the park West. <laughs> where you open up the door and you open yeah. up the door and the, the bed, the <laughs> door hits the bed. It's so small. So anyway, yeah, that was my introduction to Chicago, but that's why I came. It's really strange. God has a very interesting sense of humor. I learned in the world of recovery. If you ever want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. And and again, like, you know, many people in a moment like that, Marie would be like, okay, I'm out. Like, clearly, I'm not supposed to be doing this or, but this is just, I think, another way of showing people that, that, that wasn't my, that wasn't, again, a cl close the door situation. So what did you, how did you take your inspiration from there and what was your next move? Um, well, in the next like 24 hours, um, there was a knock at my apartment door 
And I looked through the peephole and there was my Vietnam veteran shampoo looking brother. And I was like all excited. Oh my God, I hadn't seen him in like years and years and years. This being the other brother. The oldest one, yeah. And uh, I opened up the door all excited to see him. And he stood there and he said, I don't know what the fuck you're doing here. I took care of your sister, who is the sister between us. He said, I took care of your sister. Get the fuck out of Chicago. I want nothing to do with you. Okay. And both of these brothers were products of your parents? Yes. The same parents, yes. right? Biological. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this made sense. That- okay. Yes. Okay. And then, and there, here in lies the irony. So I um, had started drinking when I was 10 and um, let me see, drugs, uh, pot was at 13. And so when I got to Chicago, I learned about this stuff called speed. Yeah. Um, And so I got addicted to speed and I had passed out in my apartment And that's when my older brother thought, hmm, maybe she needs a little uh, intervention in in her life to maybe guide her. This was in the first month. Yeah, yeah. And so um, he referred me to this employment agency called uh, excuse me, called People Incorporated on the corner of Division and State. And then um, the owner, Perry Or. Right? Literally my personal. <laughs> you crack me up, girl. I can't even take it. I can't take it. So it'll get better though. Hold on, because it's going to really strike home. So um, I went, to, so my oldest brother referred me to the owner, Perry Orr, at People Incorporated on the third floor of 8 West Division. And um, I interviewed with Perry at his employment agency. And um, now this was a kid just graduated from high school. And the only skills I had was my junior high typing and um, the job program that I had had through my senior year of high school, where I was the administrative assistant at city hall, you know, taking mail to the firemen or, you know I mean? Like it was just random shit. I think they made up, but anyway, the point was, is that, you know, I took those little bit of skills that I had and the only nice outfit that I had to interview in. And um, uh, Perry said, all right, kid, uh, call me tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. and I'll let you know if I've got any um, job openings to send you out on. So I sat there with the phone. If you remember the telephones, the big black ones with the rotary dial. And so I had that on the bed and I was sitting there waiting for 10 o'clock to happen. And I, at 10 o'clock, I immediately picked up the phone and I called Perry and I said, hi, hi, Mr. Orr, this is Marie Anderson following up from my interview yesterday. Cause we were taught in uh, our job program, how to use the telephone. And, and so- that was an excellent follow-up by the way. <laughs> Thank you. And so Perry said, uh, you're hired. I said, what? He goes, you're hired. He said, all I wanted to know, were you capable of following direction? Mm -hmm. And I asked you to call me at 10 o'clock. You called me at 10 o'clock and that's the kind of employee that I want. Mm -hmm. So so I would eventually become his assistant receptionist. And again, I think it was something that was made up because 
his receptionist was like, there were 13 people that were employment counselors, but it wasn't really, it was busy, but it didn't really need two receptionists. But soon after that, they, he would fire the receptionist and then I would become the formal receptionist. And very soon after that, he would, he would open up PS Chicago. Oh my God. So I would, I would be working for Perry during the day at People Incorporated. And then at night I'd go down to PS Chicago and be the worst waitress that any bar had ever seen because I'm dislexic and I couldn't count, you know, a dollar 25 for this drink, a dollar 50 for that drink kind of thing. But after three years of working for Perry, he came to me one day and he said, Marie, I've got a job opening for you. And I really want you to go interview with this fashion photographer. His name is Stan Malinowski. I'm like, fashion photographer? No way. I don't want to go work for a fashion photographer. He's going to rape me when I walk in the door. And, and Stan, uh, Perry said, shut up, kid. You're going to do what I tell you to do. I know what's best for you. Just put on a nice outfit and you learn from being in the employment agency, you always want the offer. Whether you want the job, at least you want the offer. So you get in there and you get the offer and make me proud. So within a few minutes of walking into Stan's studio, which was his apartment on Astor Street, oh my uh, God. <laughs> I was like, this is where I belong, God. Okay, thank you. I'm ready to start my new, my new life. <laughs> Unreal. So, if Perry had not directed me to Stan Malinowski, oh, wait, wait, let me tell you this quick story. Yeah. So, it was relevant. so I, after working for Perry, like being an administrative assistant was not very stimulating for me. And Perry knew that. Mm. Um, and, but, you know, he had taken me from receptionist to office manager. Then I became his personal assistant in that three-year time but I was still feeling lost in life. I tried joining the army. You <laughs> <laughs> like structure. <laughs> that sounds Torture. like a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a promising opportunity. Right. So, anyway, so I, I interview with the, with the recruiter and everything's good. He takes me out to lunch across the street, can't remember the name of the restaurant that went out of business. But anyway, we're sitting at the uh, lunch table. He takes out his briefcase, hands me the contract, hands me the pen. And he said, all right, Miss Anderson, all I need is that signature and you're gonna be in the army. I said, okay. And I'm putting pen to paper. And he cool. said, but wait, I do have one question before you sign that. I'm like, yes, sir. He goes, have you ever taken or no, have you ever experimented with drugs? And I said, oh, hell yeah. I was freaking as a 10 year old. I was taking, I was smoking pot as a 13 year old since I've been to Chicago. I've been heavily involved in speed and cocaine. I've been taking some hallucinogenics that I really like. And he, he takes the pen out of my hand, puts it into his briefcase, takes the contract off the table, puts it in his briefcase. He's closing the briefcase. I said, what? What's the problem? <laughs> he goes, we don't take drug addicts into the, uh, into the army. I suggest you try joining the Navy. Oh, <gasps> snap. Oh, wow. 
That's hysterical that you say that. I wanted to become a naval officer. <laughs> Little did I know they took drug addicts versus yeah. the army. That's classic. So talking about a God strike, you know, God was clearly working there. He had other plans for me. Yeah, clearly. And I mean, when we use the word God, I mean, God for you might mean God, like figuratively. And for me, God is like, I definitely think it's the universe working for sure. And I, I remember as a kid, always being like, you know, being raised Jewish is like, I love the religion. I love in the sense that when I say I love the religion, let me be very clear. I don't feel like it, I don't feel like it, and I could be really talking out my ass right now. It just feels like a, <clears throat> for me, a beautiful way to practice. But I never could conceptually go, well, what is God? Like, how do you wrap your brain around that? But I definitely do believe that there are these moments in time, all of which you've just before mentioned, that are these moments where, whether it's angels, moments, universe, energy, stars align, whatever you want to call it, that's meant for you to come to that point in the road, be like, I'm going to either go this way or I'm going to go this way. And now I'm going to be driven that way because of X, Y, and Z. And there's definitely been that for you. And I'm curious because, you know, again, it all goes back to, you know, this philosophy and foundation of, you know, is it timing? Is it meant to be? Is it philosophical? Is it who you're aligned with? Is it a combination of producing all that to become the baby that you become? Like it all goes back to that. And I think it's interesting because you and I have both seen ourselves flower. I don't know, to the point where we're, you know, uh, have we finished? No. I, uh, you know, ironically, ironically, speaking of Stan Malinowski, which is a perfect segue, um, having met him at 18, then having re-met him when you sent me there six years later, crazy enough, and Stan and I never working together, and he was like, it's not that I don't want to work with you, but I think that there's something else I'm supposed to be doing, and speaking of a moment in time, and I think I share this with you, but it, it's perfect for this conversation. So at the time, Stan, in this, I don't know if it was the Aster place or somewhere else, I felt very small, but he had this big ass Xerox machine, and he, and I, and I felt big, but that's just my own, you know, mindset. And he's like, I, I feel like there's something I should be sharing with you. And he proceeds to take this image in a frame off the wall and take it out, put it in the Xerox machine, print it up, give me a copy, puts it back in the frame, hangs up and says, so what do you see? And I said, well, there's a bunch of numbers, names, and it looks like things people are aligned with. He said, yeah. So what's the youngest age? I said, nine. He said, what's the oldest age? I said, 101. And he says, and, and, you know, what is the average age on this piece of paper? And I looked at the paper and I said, 57. 
He said, right, and he, who, who, who is the person who's got 57 in front of their name? I said, Ray Kroc. He says, right, and what did Ray Kroc do? And I said, he started wow. McDonald's. <clears throat> and, I, and he said, right, so Felicia, I know here you are at 24, I met you at 18. Wow. You, you think you're already supposed to be where you're supposed to be? I'm here to tell you that you're going to have to get to that age or more to come into who you're here to be. Whoa. And I was like, really? Because I've lived a lot of life already. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure, Mr. Malinowski? <laughs> come on, Stan. <laughs> this is my second meeting with you. Really? I waited six years and I didn't even know I was supposed to have this meeting. <laughs> And now you're going to wow. philosophize on me, philosophize, whatever you're doing, however you make up that word. And so cut to, I carried that piece of paper with me for a very, very long time to the point where now I speak on it. Yeah. And now I've gotten to this age. And I'm like, I really do feel like he was completely intuitively correct. I don't remember, I mean, we're talking, I'm about to talk like he's not alive. He's very much alive and we keep in yeah, touch yeah, all yeah. the time. I wish but, he was um, here. I Do what? I wish he was on this call. You oh, right? Me. He's such a hoot. Um, but what I was going to say is, I don't remember Stan being that deep or that philosophical. <sighs> but maybe being an employee, obviously, was a different situation but what i would like to bring up before we close uh, you button up your podcast here what for me um and we haven't even gotten into this component but um i am a sexual assault survivor and speaking of stan when i started working for stan i think one of the first projects that we worked on before i got really involved in the fashion aspect of his was he was shooting for Playboy and Penthouse. I think he was finishing up his Penthouse and transitioning to Playboy, something like that. I have a vague memory, but the point is, is that he was also involved with, it was either Louis or We Magazine. It was a mm -hmm. uh, French uh, gentleman's magazine. Mm -hmm. But what I, I find fascinating is having been a sexual assault survivor before working for Stan, mm -hmm. um, I really didn't understand, you know, what had happened to me and the whole idea of survivor consequences and that kind of stuff. But I do remember being on set with Stan and telling myself, yes, we're here, this woman is nude, her legs are open, she's not wearing any panties and my job is to make sure that her face doesn't shine. Right. It, like it was incredibly awkward to me, but I didn't know why. Right. Uh, I did not have enough awareness, but like my soul just felt very uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, I was trying to appreciate her beautiful body. I was right. trying to appreciate her beauty, the lighting, the beautiful luxe garments that Stan had as accoutrement because they right. really weren't like covering her body much. Right. Um, or her, I mean, there were multiple girls. Um, and then 
flash forward, I would become, you know, involved in the elite network. And then I would overhear a conversation, which this year I've been on 60 Minutes Australia and Vice TV and 66 Minutes France. And like, I've been very vocal about this since I overheard this conversation, but it was about 19, late 1989 that I overheard a conversation between John Casablancas and Gerald Marie from Paris Elite. Uh, defending themselves for sleeping with 13 and 14 year old girls. Mm -hmm. Then I knew that was a problem that I could not be a part of. Mm -hmm. And slowly things started coming together for me to start understanding about inappropriate activity. And I don't have to accept the fashion business and the sexual impropriety that happens or the hostile work environments that happen. And not just in fashion, you know, it happens anywhere. Look at the gymnasts that have been in the news for years and, you know, the, the Sandusky and the football, you know, I mean, it's, it just goes on and on, but I was involved in the fashion business. And as a result of hearing that conversation, I think I was um, 28, 29, somewhere, somewhere around there. And um, no, I was 30. Um, and after I heard that conversation, I quit my job at Elite because- And that was 1989? Yeah. See, see, I left in 92 and that was the things that I was trying to remember because I didn't realize that you had already quit. Yeah, I, I left in 1990 and okay. then uh, not, I just quit the modeling business. I'm like, this is so gross. If this is what the modeling business is all about, I don't want any part of it. And so for two years, the agency business. So for two years, I had a little company called Model Futures and it was right below uh, People Incorporated on the second floor. I went right back to where I was comfortable um, at 8 West Division. Um, but that little company, Model Futures, would become ARIA model and talent management. I opened up that in 1992 with Mary Boncher. Um, but the conversation that I would overheard with John and Gerald was, I know this is wrong. I don't know what to do about it. I was trying to talk to media at the time about uh, the sexual impropriety in the fashion business and nobody would listen. And, you know, all these years have passed, decades have passed. There was only one person that was my advocate and it was, or is, his name is Michael Gross. He's a, a journalist out of New York. He had written the book Model, The Ugly Business of Beautiful Women, where he was talking about how I had discovered Cindy Crawford and how I had overheard that conversation between John and Gerald. Mm -hmm. And he was the only, only person that would acknowledge that this is happening. This is wrong. It needs to change. Mm -hmm. Nobody would do anything, even with a journalist of his significance. Mm -hmm. I would find out later that his life was being threatened as a result mm -hmm. of talking about these things. That mm -hmm. fortunately never happened to me. But as these decades have passed and I got clean and sober uh, in 2004, and then I started to learn so much more with that, um, taking away the drugs, taking away the alcohol. I learned so much more about oppression and abuse and power 
and mm-hmm. sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. The, so exp- it helped me better understand why I was uncomfortable working in Stan's studio with Playboy, you know, centerfold girls mm-hmm. or the centerfold tests, um, mm-hmm. because that was very, what, what is called triggering. Correct. That, that did not feel right with my soul. Right. And so that has been over the decades, that has been my, my objective is to bring awareness and to be an agent of change, to try to create safe work environments for my models, for all creatives, not just models um, in general. But since the Me Too, Harvey Weinstein, you know, Crosby, Jeffrey Epstein, all of it. Yeah. Now, finally, we have Me Too fashion. Yeah. And so, you know, back to, you know, when you think about it kind of like as, as a martial artist or as a samurai, you know, walking many miles as me being a warrior or walking all these miles uh, only to be now finally, as I said, with the TV shows, global television shows, now listening to my voice, sharing my story. Now it's like, oh, I kind of understand what my life has been about. Right, your been, purpose. Yeah, I've just been kind of like collecting Planting time. Seeds. Excuse me? Planting seeds. Yeah, but it's kind of like I've been collecting these little life experiences, magical or not magical, but at the end of the day, it's like, okay, so my life does have a purpose and it's a good thing that I did not die as a 16 year old and I did not execute that that suicide. Like when I think about the books that I've written that have been published worldwide and the first one was Cindy Crawford on the cover, right? Like I've done some serious shit. Yeah. And so now it's like, okay, what's my last act? And that what was what my, I was, and what do you think your last act is? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's good. You don't need to know because obviously, but, but this is a beautiful thing about this conversation. Unlike a conversation where you'd be just in a documentary talking about the abuse and, and all the, the unfortunate circuit, the darkness of the fashion model business, right? You get to see in this conversation, hopefully different than maybe other conversations because of our connection and our journeys, how all of these things have led you to this place, how all of these things have been a purpose, how all of these things have made you the empathetic, intuitive healer who has been the teacher who has been the warrior who has been the journeyman who has been the woman who has been the inspiration who has been the voice who did set those presences and i relate to this because as you and i have had these kind of parallel lives you know why i didn't know you had quit was because my film career was taking off in 1990 and by 1992 was moving to Los Angeles. And while I was rising up, and this isn't about me, this is to show you your parallel and what your your purpose is. While I was rising up, I came to LA and went, what is in this water? What's with these people? Because I started coming up against some seriously famous abusive people. 
that I was aligned with as their personals, as their personal hair and makeup artists. And no matter how many times I rose up, people would try to pull you back down. And then, of course, then I got involved with leaving my marriage and getting involved with, you know, domestic violence and, and all those things and then winning awards and blah, 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 and continuing, continuing, continuing. And here I am now, <clears throat> what, over 35 years in my industry, something like that crazy. And um, <clears throat> my point to it is, is when you ask yourself, you know, what is my purpose? What is my passion? What am I here to do? What am I here to accomplish? Am I doing it? Am I on the right path? A year ago, and I've been speaking on this abuse, and I've been speaking on these things, especially since I survived abuse back in the 90s, right, in the early 90s, mid 90s. I feel like, you know, people think I'm like 20 years younger than what I am. And I really believe Marie, and I would feel this of you as well. <clears throat> I feel that it's like, and this is what I say, you know, come, you know, sit around the campfire, Camp Fifi Uncensored, you know, where, this, where the soul is young, where the, where, the, where the spirit is young, the soul is wise, and, you know, the life stories are, you know, ever flowing. And my point to that is, is that here's a perfect example of us sitting down. We've never had this kind of actual trajectory and in-depth kind of reveal and pull back the curtain. And I know we could do like, 10 more of these two hour segments <laughs> and barely, you know, scrape the surface. <clears throat> but I think it's so interesting to have two women like ourselves who have had this connection for all these years, didn't even realize all of the stuff that even made us more connected. And yet, again, paralleling out into the universe, what we're doing. I've spoken on the abuse. I've spoken on <clears throat> the unfortunate circumstances of an entertainment industry that I wanted to come in as a director and a DP, not as a hair and makeup artist, oh. but I knew that I was going to be the only woman when I was at Columbia, the only woman in film school in my class. I knew that that was not going to be easy. I knew when I got into fashion, fashion photography, I was already a trained photographer. I could have been doing what those men were doing all those men i was working with how many goddamn women photographers were in the industry one fucking one i would do everything but point and shoot the goddamn camera yeah and 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 i was the one of three females on a film set at 28 years old heading a department wow. and looking around going why is this like an nfl locker room and I was seeing that back then in 1990 and thank god I got on with Manuel but not to be sexualized and trust me people were trying to sexualize me and you and I both know I wasn't the thinnest girl on the block it didn't matter I mean ironically you guys I don't know if you even remember this the very same day that you sent me to meet Dan my ex-husband we won't say any more names you guys were asking me to come into your agency and talk about becoming a full figure model. Yes. Yes. I remember like, that. I'm like, you women are crazy. <laughs> you know how to like, what, what are you talking about? Like these women tower over me. I fucking should have just gone for it, but I still think it was crazy. But again, those moments were like, okay, well, you know, why does one take another? Why does one? Yeah. Listen, I was 24 and I was submitted for a Michael Mann movie. 
I don't know if you know this. No. And I got the part. This is before you met me. I had gotten the part. And I was a lead in everything I went out for. And when I got on set in full hair, makeup, wardrobe, everything, the man, the myth, the whatever comes onto the set when all cast and crew are in place, walks on set in front of everybody and says, get the fat girl off the set. Holy shit. So what you don't know about me is that as much talent as I have in this little sliver, uh-huh. and I mean that with great humility, yeah. and all the people I laugh, made laugh and cry and entertain through my dancing, my singing, and my performing, all coming up, shut me right out and down right then and there. And I made a decision I was never going to put myself in that position again which is why I went behind the scenes and then I've dealt with years and years and years of putting Humpty Dumpties up on the wall. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying people aren't talented and gifted, but a lot of putting people up on the wall and supporting. And look, I love what you said about doing things selfishly because you get things out of it and the whole thing. Well, of course, so do I, but I'm also done with being, you know, dimming my light. Yeah. which is why I wanted to do this platform so I could bring other people into the this world as well because of what I've always been good at doing, not because I need to be heard, but because I have been told so many times how many books I need to write, how much speaking engagement, all the things that I've done throughout my life, just people aren't aware of it. Why I've also invited people like yourself, women into my life, into this podcast, because of what you know about me, but what you don't know about me and what I know about you and what I don't know about you and what more people need to hear about people like us to so they know that they can too get up and fucking go out into the world and do something masterful and powerful and affect and inspire and change people's lives and know that if this door closes, go fucking kick open the next door because it's right there get the fuck up because you've got the power within you and fucking snap out of it (laughs) and fucking know that you're here for masterful reasons to make people laugh and to make people cry and just because you come across one sick fuck it's just one sick fuck yeah to not give your power away but to put your power forth in the most God-given way and spread it loud and proud. Damn it. Because, yeah, you know, like you, just this last year, I was writing this story about this industry that we're now on the precipice of do we or are we or will we strike? And all these people are now coming out with their stories anonymously Mm. about the abuses Mm -hmm. that people were not prepared for and that people couldn't talk about. So I think the beautiful thing is, and I know we're going to have to wrap this up, but we're going to have to do this again. So know that we have a date going forward. We just have to figure this out. But know that I think the purpose of this conversation for you and me is to not only be able to be in our own safe zone, that authentically allows us to just be us, but allows us to be able to share us so other people can hear themselves in our stories. 
And then in turn, be able to look themselves in the mirror and go, if they could do it, so can I. Awesome. Here, here. So, so, so much. You are just such my heart. It makes me smile. My cheeks are vibrating. I love you so much. I know we're on a time thing, so we're going to let you go. I just want to thank you so much for being here. I know we just barely scraped the surface, so please be my guest again for another two-hour session because I want to talk more with you. Anything for you, Felicia. Love you so much. Be safe. Talk soon. Have a great day. Love you. Love you. Love you, love your show. <laughs> love you, love you. <laughs> oh my God, that was just the most amazing thing. Having this conversation with Marie, holy smokes, I can't even, I can't even. That is just to me the beginning of what I feel like I've got mascara running down my face and whoever cares. But I just think that that was such an incredible reflection and hopefully an inspiration to, to people out there, men and women, that no matter what comes in your way, no matter what feels like is a hurdle, that there is another side to that coin and that it's just a willingness to make a decision to get out of your own way and to get up and be a purpose in your life. Love you so much. Thank you.